Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy that we have in a relationship with you, a joy that is only possible through what Jesus has done, that doesn't depend upon our righteousness, but depends upon yours. Lord, we thank you that your word not only is able to make us wise to salvation, but able to make us equipped for every good work. So Lord, we pray that your powerful word uh, might be heard and responded to this morning. Lord, I pray that you would work by your spirit to work in me, that I might be clear, that you would keep me from error, and that all of us would hear that which you intend us to hear, uh, that we might bring glory and honour to Christ through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we all know there's lots of phrases that kids like to use and there are some that are just a little bit annoying. Now the most famous of those is the long-term road trip of are we there yet? As I was thinking about that, my parents, if they're listening, will probably tell me otherwise if I'm incorrect. I don't think we were big users of are we there yet? But we did have another expression which I don't know exactly where we got it from. But the question we used to regularly ask is, what seems to be the delay? And I don't even know why we even said it delay, but we said it with a delay in the middle of the word. So when we'd say, what seems to be the delay, we were asking, this seems to be taking longer than it should. What is the reason for why this is stretching out longer than it should? Now, one of the joys this morning of Sarah being on creche, and as a result, both of our kids are out there this morning, is they have not heard that expression uh, to pick it up, and I'd appreciate you not passing it on to them. (laughs) But it's a question we could ask about David becoming king of Israel. Saul was rejected in chapter 15. David anointed in chapter 16. But it's 15 years until David becomes king over Judah, and then another seven years on top of that until he becomes king over the entirety of Israel. Now, you could be tempted to look at that and ask the question, what seems to be the delay? Now, if God has decided this is his chosen king and he has all power and authority, why? Why the long time span? Or likewise, you could think about, Revelation talks about when Jesus returns, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no pain, sickness, death, struggle with sin. It's like, if that's where it's all headed, why the 2,000 plus years? It's not that he can't. There's probably things at the moment you think, I want to do them, but in this situation with COVID, either whether it be a border restriction or restrictions on gatherings, you can't do them. You look at the statistics of how things are around Queensland at the moment and think, why? What's the delay? We've got a famous phrase we use regularly in protests. What do we want? When do we want it? Now. And I think that resonates because we're quite an impatient culture. We want what we want, and we want it now. Unless, of course, it's something unpleasant, in which case we're quite happy for it to delay forever if it needs to be. But ever since 1 Samuel chapter 18, Saul has been on a relentless pursuit of David. 
last week, it almost looked like it had come to an end. We saw that he had him break them up into two companies that were coming in, just about to approach on the place where David was. And just then, in the providence of God, a messenger comes along to inform Saul that the Philistines are attacking. And so Saul moves away from his pursuit of David to go and fight the Philistines. However, once again, no surprise, Saul's back on the hunt for David. And we're looking at this question of waiting on the Lord. Are we there yet? Who is king? Waiting righteously and waiting on the Lord. Are we there yet? Verses 1 to 7. Now we know that when Saul was just about to close in on David, the messenger came along, so Saul went and fought against the Philistines. And everything that we seem to gather from our passages, it went well. He pursued them, he chased them away, he was victorious. And you imagine Saul's probably coming back with a little bit of a spring in his step. I am the one, I am the mighty king who has led us into victory. Maybe he's even taken that famous song and twisted around a little bit as he starts to sing the song, David's killed none, David's with the goats. Saul's killed these thousands and now it's time to gloat. Now I'm sure at this point in time many of you are thinking, oh Steve, what a waste, I know you used to write songs, but with gems like that, why have you given up? But to have another report of where David is now, Saul must be thinking, I'm pretty confident. You know, I've just come back from a big military defeat. But even beyond that, statistically, things are really on his side. If you look around Saul, Saul has 3,000 personally selected soldiers. David, on the other hand, has 600 that he didn't select who came to him who were the brokenhearted, the downcast. And as Saul and his men close in on the location where David is now at with his men, nature takes its course. It's not often you read in the Bible that somebody went to the toilet. Now, I haven't done a massive study of the Bible. I can think of two. King Eglong and Judge is the only other one that I can think of. But why even mention that? Is it just so some of the childish ones amongst us can have a giggle to find out that the Hebrew word to relieve himself means to cover his feet? Was he a bit clumsy? No, it's, it's recorded because through the natural course of normal everyday events, Saul finds himself in the exact same cave where David and his men were hiding from Saul. And you think, this could end really, really badly. For years, David's been trying to run from Saul and now Saul is in the exact same cave where he is. We don't know if there's an exit way out. We'd presume they would choose one where there are alternative ways to escape. But he's there and he's got his 3,000 elite guys somewhere outside of that cave. Now we know what the men around David thought was the best thing to do. They saw this as a God-given opportunity. They say, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. They're like, God's given this opportunity. He's told you about this. But nowhere in Scripture do we actually have any reference to God making such a statement to David. 
Sure, there was a time when Jonathan said to David, speaking about a time when the Lord would cut off David's enemies. God had spoken to David saying he'd give the Philistines, who are an enemy but not specifically Saul, into his hands. But regardless to whether there's any substance or not, from the perspective of David's men, they're like, now is the time. God has given you this opportunity. Get up, slay Saul, stop this constant running away from your life, become the king that you're always supposed to be. It's got to be tempting, doesn't it? Saul, David hasn't had a place to call home for years, constantly looking over his shoulder for Saul and his pursuit of him. We get the impression at this point in time, David must know that he was the one whom God has chosen to become king, even though nowhere specifically so far has it been directly mentioned to David. Like when he was anointed, he wasn't told that. Saul has made a number of statements that he believes that David will become the next king. The best that we have, which is the reason why I'm convinced that David did know, is that when Jonathan last met with him, said, when you become king, I will be by your side. And David didn't correct that at all. It's got to be tempting. And I imagine someone who's going to the toilet would be pretty easy pickings. You're probably not in your best position to defend yourself during that time. But David doesn't listen to the advice of his peers around him. What he does is he sneaks up and cuts off a small part of his robe. Now, there's a couple of things there that intrigue me. Sneaking up on the guy who has relentlessly desired to take your life, that's a big move, and I reckon if I heard anything behind me while I was going to it, I'd be a little bit sus. And then secondly, how sharp does a sword need to be that you can cut off a corner of the robe without anyone even noticing Now, there's a lot of details about what happened in the cave that are uncertain, but there's one thing that is abundantly clear. The moment that David cut off something from the robe of Saul, he was convicted he had sinned. He had immense guilt himself, and he also informed the company around him not to take action. Speaking of his own actions, he says, "'The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord.'" the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. He could have weighed up and thought, man, how much easier is life going to be if Saul's not around anymore? That wasn't what crossed his mind. He's like, I can't believe in this moment I rose up and I took action against the one whom the Lord had anointed as my king. God put Saul in this role. Who am I to raise a hand against someone that God had put into that place? Even today, we're reminded in Romans 13, all authorities have been appointed by God, have their power by God. Congratulations, Premier. You, whether you like it or not, have been appointed by God. Pray that you would honour him and serve his good purposes. But David is so strongly convicted of his wrongdoing, he's not even going to let the others around him do anything. You get the impression that there's part of the guys around David who think, well, if he won't do it, we will. 
And he doesn't just rebuke them. He doesn't just persuade them, which is what we have it worded in the ESV. That term translated persuaded them with these words means he tore them apart. You know how you often hear that expression? Like when someone really goes hard on someone, they say they ripped them to shreds. David made them known in no uncertain terms, you do not raise a hand, you do not oppose the Lord's anointed. David wasn't thinking, maybe this wasn't the best idea, this thing I've just done. He understood the gravity of it. I have opposed the Lord's anointed. Remembering that, that word anointed is the same Hebrew word translated Messiah or in the Greek, Christ. How much more for any of us to disrespect the greater and the final Messiah, the Christ, Jesus himself. God has rejected this Saul. However, he still is the king. God has put him in that role and it's not David's job to take him out of it. But it does ask the question, who is king? David's cut off a bit of the robe. Saul's left the cave. He has no idea of what's taken place inside of the cave. And after rebuking his own men, David leaves the cave for the first time in a long time to approach Saul on his own initiative. To approach the one who has sought to take his life time and time again. That's a massive event in David's life. He approaches Saul, who probably within distance that he could command, has 3,000 elite soldiers behind him. So how does David address the one who's unjustly sought his life for years? He called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage whether he ruled well as king or not, my Lord, the king. You are king, I am not. The Lord's anointed, God has put you in this place. And then this guy who fanatically has been wanting to kill David, David honours him with his face to the ground. And he's so gracious in his dealing with Saul. He doesn't say, you're insane. You don't deserve to be king. You've been trying to take my innocent blood for years. What he says to Saul is, why do you listen to men who say that David will bring you harm? That's quite a generous statement for David to make because as far as the Bible account is is concerned, the only person who's been telling Saul that David's going to bring him harm is Saul. The one who was rejected by God in chapter 15. David anointed chapter 16. Oh, he's not told there that he's anointed to become king. We know through, particularly through that conversation with Jonathan, that's likely where David believes is the next step. So God's rejected Saul. He's anointed David. He has an opportunity to take Saul out of the equation 
He's got all of his mates around him saying, go do it, this is God's will. But he won't do it. Matter of fact, he's grieved, he's, he's overcome with guilt just by the fact that he's cut off a piece of his robe. And as he addresses Saul, he says, I had the opportunity. You were there in the cave. I was there in the cave. I had men around me saying to take your life. But I would not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And then in case there was any doubt, David holds up a piece of Saul's robe. Saul just needs to look down, see there's a bit missing, same fabric right there and put two and two together. David could have taken my life, but he didn't. Why did David cut off a bit of his robe? Is it just so he could have evidence to his claims like, I could have killed you, but I didn't? Was he hoping to communicate something by doing that? Why was he so upset about the act itself? I mean, the robe was an indication of of Saul's role as king. Was David kind of laying claim a little bit, saying, I know I'm going to be king, so I'm just going to take a bit of that now? That would certainly be a possibility of understanding the extent to which Saul, sorry, David grieved over his actions. Or there's the other connection back to the time when Saul was rejected when another robe was torn. When Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel used that as an illustrating point and said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbour of yours who is better than you. Now, I don't know if David knew about that event. He probably didn't. So it may not have been playing in David's mind. But I imagine Saul seeing David hold a part of his robe would have very clearly remembered. Remember that time back with Samuel when I was told I was rejected and that was illustrated by the tearing of a robe and given to someone else. And I think possibly even God wants us to see the visual picture between those two events. Say what? God knows he's going to be king? Why would David be so grieved that he's cut some of his robe? God's plan to make him king. There's been a previous illustration exactly like this. Just that David recognised the king. David recognised there is a king even greater than Saul, the Lord God Almighty. He is the one who has anointed Saul for this role. He is the one who has put Saul into this role. He is the one, to use the words of Hannah's prayers from chapter 2, the Lord raises up, the Lord brings low. It's not a case of the Lord raises up Saul and it's David's job to bring him down low. And he recognised it is not his place to take God's will into his own hands. To strike Saul would be not only to oppose Saul as the human king, but would it be oppose the ultimate king, the Lord who had appointed and anointed him to that role. It's almost like a case of God's will being commandeered. God's way. Oh, sorry, man's way. A little bit like Abraham and Sarah, and they promise you're going to have a son. Years go on, it doesn't seem to be taking place. There seems to be a delay. So Abraham's thinking, Hagar, maybe that's the way to do it. 
And I think if we dig deep, sometimes we can be guilty in those times of waiting, of commandeering God's will, thinking it's in our power. We need to act to bring something to a sudden and succinct conclusion. Whether it's the guy or girl who's so convinced that it's God's will for them to be married and there's just someone so nice and perfect in their, in their environment around them. They're not a believer, but surely God's brought them into their life at that point. No, he hasn't. It could be anything that either has been revealed to be God's will or even just something we might have concluded is God's will. And we think that it's our job to make that a reality because we think God's taking too long. David says, do not do that. But because of David's delayed experience, he learnt a lot. Now as we read through the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms that David wrote are written during this period while he's constantly on the run. And we find great comfort in this David who in the middle of his threat, not understanding why all these things are going on around him, says, I will place my trust in the Lord. And he lays the situation before Saul and before God. He said, may God judge between you and me. If I've done wrong, may the Lord be the one to avenge me for it. And then quoting from, an, from a well-known proverb of the time, very similar to the words of Jesus in Mark 7 we looked at last week. It says, out of the wicked comes wickedness which he uses as a phrase not only to vindicate himself, saying, if I was really wicked, I would have taken your life there in the cave. But I didn't. So clearly I'm, I'm not wicked. But he does then turn it around to Saul. So, Saul, remind me again, what are you here for? And even speaks of himself in very humble terms. For a dead dog? Like dogs were considered really unclean at the best of times, but a dead dog? Even a flea on a dead dog? That's how he comparatively thinks of himself, who Saul was pursuing with wicked intent. David could have taken kingship in a moment, but he chose to wait and chose to wait righteously. Now clearly Saul is struck by the words and the merciful actions of David. It's quite a very different picture of Saul we see in this chapter than what we've seen for quite some time, isn't it? Whether it's just that understanding of, this guy would have killed me and if I was in his shoes, I would have done it, is probably what Saul's thinking. Maybe the proverb that out of the wicked comes wickedness started to convict Saul of his own sin. But he certainly, at least in the moment, changed his heart towards David. In the more recent chapters, he hasn't even been able to bring it to himself to speak to David by name. He always refers to himself as the son of Jesse. And now after this event, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son, David? Not only his name, but that intimacy of my son David and Saul lifted up his voice and wept for at least for a brief moment Saul seemed to recognise his guilt recognise the grace and mercy of David recognising his own evil 
Although sadly, chapter 26 will find it's back on again. And once again, David will have opportunity to take Saul's life, but refuses to do so, saying, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he'll go down to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. He's learnt the lesson. He's like, if he's going to come to an end, it's not going to beat my hands. The Lord has raised him up. The Lord will bring him low in his good timing. And the chapter ends. Saul again acknowledging, you will be king over Israel. And he asked for mercy for his offspring. Don't cut off my offspring. Which was pretty easy for David to agree because he'd already committed that to David's other, to Saul's son, Jonathan. Waiting on the Lord. How often do we find ourselves asking of God what seems to be the delay? Maybe not in those words and maybe not even articulated at all. Maybe not even spoken at all. But maybe we've carried a resentment. God, I have brought this situation before you for years. Why isn't anything happening? Almost like without it being spoken, an accusation that God, you're not doing what you should do. You're supposed to be a loving God. This has been going on for five years. We're not known to be a patient generation, as I said. We don't like waiting. We don't even like discomfort. So to put waiting and discomfort together, it's not something that appeals to us at all. We like ease, comfort, happiness, gratification. We like the quick and easy option. Like the one David was faced with. He could have done... Never have to worry about Saul ever again. So I won't raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. Very early on in the very beginnings of Jesus' ministry, the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He says, just worship, bow down to me. All of the kingdoms will be yours. Now, he didn't have the authority to make that offer anyway. There was a waiting Consistently throughout Jesus' ministry, we have the phrase, my hour has not come. There was pain, there was suffering along the way for God's appointed time. We're an impatient people. We don't like submitting to God's will, God's timing, particularly if it means prolonged difficulty, prolonged suffering, not knowing how and when God will work it out. I've encountered countless people who were angry with God because of this. Angry with God, thinking, God, how long? I've given you a good crack at it, but you don't seem to be doing anything. But you don't see David angry with God. In particular, in this chapter, we see David disappointed with himself that he, for a moment, in a fleshly moment, thought, I could do something. I could take hold of it for myself. This is what you've promised me, God. I'm going to grab hold of it. But the moment he acted, he realised, I'm not king. God is king. He will achieve his will, his way, his timing. 
The Lord's never slow. The Lord's never forgetful. The Lord's never neglectful. He's never late. He can be trusted. He can be trusted even in the middle of the hardship. Don't waste your waiting in bitterness and frustration. Do exactly what David did. He poured out his heart. He poured out his concerns before God. But he always landed on, but I will place my trust in the Lord. He knew God's character wasn't changing. He knew God was doing whatever he needed to get done. And he said, I want to use this to see me grow. I'll never meet a Christian who doesn't want to grow in their faith. But guess how your faith grows? It grows by being tested. Those who wait upon the Lord are renewed in strength. As we read through the Psalms of David, may we read them and go, yes, Lord, I want to be like that. I will wait on your timing. I want to have confidence in your character. I want to say, like David says in Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. Not, not necessarily he will rescue you. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. That's what David learned. God will not always bring you out, give you the instant gratification, instant result you always want. Bring it to him. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to move or to be full. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we face so many things in life that we don't understand. We face so many things in life that just seem totally unjust and sometimes it even feels like you don't care, like you're doing nothing about it. But Lord, we know your character, we know you do care. You know every intimate detail about every single one of us. You know the very pains and struggles that we are faced with either right here and this morning or that we have in the past or we will in the future. And you have promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are with us to the end of the age. Lord, grow us in our faith in the middle of those times that we might seek you, that we might rest upon your character, your sovereignty, that we might proclaim through our faith and our dependence upon you in those situations a God who can be trusted, a God who really is king over all. That for our believing friends and our unbelieving friends, that we would honour your anointed, your Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might not shake our fist at him, but give thanks that he has done in our place the very thing we needed to reconcile us to God. We thank you that through his plan, which you will bring to consummation, we will be in eternity with him, where all of these things will be no more, pain, death, sickness, struggles with sin, And we will cling on to that very hope and we long and we wait for your return. Help us to do that in righteousness and in faithfulness. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
he suffered at the hand of uh, Pontius Pilate and the Romans and Herod, when he was, um, when the crowds yelled, crucify him, crucify him, it looked like God was absent. 